You are listening to the Magnetic Marketing Marketing Secret Gold Members Only Podcast. When I moved from Ohio to Arizona, I left here in 1978. We had just had two consecutive record-breaking bad winters, and I'd had it. Um, I don't really like to talk on the phone, and I think Pete's here. I think I called him 20 times a day because I was trapped in my apartment for five days, couldn't leave. My first wife and I were trapped in the apartment for five days, couldn't leave. It was three days too long for that marriage. Um, um, I'm best taken in small doses. Um, um, anyway, right before I left, the big thing in the news in Akron, Ohio, was this very prominent judge, um, family, prominent. Um, I mean, this was very newsworthy because of who he was. Uh, he had gotten arrested for uh, molesting a little neighbor girl, very young little girl, and had sexually molested her. And I mean, it was like two weeks, TV news, newspaper news, you know, whatever. Somebody, one of the reporters, finally gets an interview with this guy. Um, and she asks him, you know, given who you are, you know, and all the good works you've done, and hum, 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 how could this happen? And he said, I've thought about it a lot. And he said, here's what happened. Eight years ago, I'm watering the bushes in my front yard. And a little girl in a short little sundress goes by on the sidewalk. And for a fleeting millisecond, I had a thought of what would that be like. And he said, months later, and he described another, I won't bore you with the long story, but he described another scenario, and he said, now the thought lingered for maybe a minute. And then, six, seven months later, described another scenario, and he said, at some point, about two months ago, it's all I was thinking about. And as soon as it was all I was thinking about, I did it. It happened. Now, what he described is how everything happens. This is how you buy a car. You first have a fleeting millisecond of thought about it. You see a car, an ad for a car, a car in a parking lot you like. It's red, it looks good, it, whatever. You weren't shopping for a car, you weren't ready to buy a car necessarily, it wasn't on your radar screen, but a little thought. Now the, the door thing goes bad. This happens, that happens. Pretty soon it's a minute of thought, 10 minutes of thought, 15 minutes of thought. The day it becomes pretty much all you're thinking about is only a day or two before you buy a car. That's how everything happens. 
in terms of positive achievement. And see, understand, this is like money. See, the process doesn't discriminate based on morality or immorality or good or bad or Christian or Buddhist or black or white or poor or rich. The process is like money. It doesn't care or know. It works, just like money moves. So the same process that turns the respectable judge, patriarch of his family, Sunday school teacher at his church into a child molester is the same process that gets you to buy a new Ford this week, and it's the same process that makes somebody rich. Process is the same. And by the way, everybody is susceptible to the process having an adverse effect on them just as having a positive effect on you. None of us are immune. Everything happens this way. Now the trick to faster achievement is getting to the last part of the process quicker. Because as soon as it's the only thing you're thinking about, whatever it is, it happens. Just for most of us, it takes a hell of a long time to get to the point where whatever it is is the only thing we're thinking about. This is how, most of you are married, this is how you got married. <laughs> Unless you were really, really drunk and in Vegas. But otherwise, this is how, you know, then it's a little quicker. But this is, and you might not have been thinking at all. But I mean, for the most part, this is how everything happens. The trick is just to get to the end of the process faster. Now, there's all sorts of things necessary to get there, clarity of what it is that you want. But the programming issue, getting rid of crap so there's nothing in the way, and then everything you can do to get yourself focused on the it that you want gimmicky stuff, picture on the refrigerator, drawer full of money, psychological triggers, everything you can do to get you to the end of that process, then you get whatever it is you want quicker. The process is in fact works all the time, like gravity. The process controls your entire life. Everything you got, everything you're ever going to get, everything you lost, everything you don't have, everything you've ever achieved, pretty much all of it went through this process. Sometimes it just takes a long time. People always ask me, well, how did you get in this business? How did you become a speaker? How did you do this? And my short answer to them is accident. I bumbled into everything. But the long answer to a lot of it is, if you go back and analyze it, it's this process. Ever so slowly grinding its way to a point where suddenly it accelerates. First time I ever thought about speaking, I was 16, saw Zig speak. I didn't think about it very long. For one thing, I stuttered. So a natural career choice is not, hey, I'll go do that, you know? But I mean, there was a thought, because of the stampede, by the way, not because of the speech. I mean, the thought was, holy crap, look at this. You just did that, which doesn't look all that difficult. <laughs> and, he, and this is happening. 
holy. It's funny how speakers, Mike Vance, you know, no, we're not going to change Mike. Mike's, I don't know, 71, 72. But most of the places Mike speaks, there ain't no stampede. You know what I'm saying? I mean, he's doing GE and, you know, the National Association of something or other. His use, he doesn't really sell from the platform. A little more than he used to. Um, but, I mean, he doesn't do, like, a pitch like I would do a pitch. And in most of the environments he speaks, you'd have to fight for the right to do and all of that. So they don't see what they saw yesterday much, like ever, like three times probably, the three times he's spoken for me. Mm. Now, Diane, she's not 72. And she's... <laughs> Yeah, I'm a real bad judge of that, but I can get into the general neighborhood. Um, um, she's interested in the money. She's the one responsible for bringing in the money. She didn't see it the last time. She wasn't with him. She saw it this time. I had to kill her to get her to ship 12 units over here. That was like, huh? No, Diane, remember the last time? Twelve units. But now there's a glimmer of thought. Like, gee, could we do this all the time? You know? A couple of questions. Say, do you always put it in bags? Yeah, Diane, we always put it in bags. I'm sorry. Do you never let him just buy a book? No, Diane, we never let him just buy a book. <laughs> now, here's what's going to happen, see? She's off of it now. She's on to other things. But the, she had a little thought. She's going to see it again somewhere, or it's going to occur to her now when they ship all the stuff. Hey, this is more crap going out of here in a day than it's going out of here in a month. And she's going to think about it for a little longer. And then she's going to think about it for a little longer. And at some point in time, Diane Deacon's going to be selling from the front of the room. She's going to figure out at some gigs, if he won't, she should go get up after him and sell from the front of the room. She's going to figure this out. And it will all have started with this tiny little... Now, she could speed it up. Because it's the long, and then, but when it speeds up, it really speeds up. Well, you can manually, you can do things to speed it up, and that means you can do one thing, you can get one thing done after another faster. Because you get the front end of the process out of the way, speed it all up, get it done, and get on to the next thing. But that's the process. If you understand the process, now it's just about manipulating the speed. Let's talk about expectancy a little bit. I think it's your next slide, 24, isn't it? The old Norman Vincent Peale approach to this, and I mean no disrespect to Norman, but the old Norman Vincent Peale approach to this 
has too much focus on the thinking. It was a problem with the Napoleon Hill book. It's one of the reasons Napoleon Hill broke. Read his book, read Clem Stone's book, read them one right after the other, as if you were trying to look at them side by side. You'll see every difference I'm going to point out to you today, including the one at the end of the day. It's all reflected very clearly between the two. But now 90% of the books are the same. There's enormous commonality. There's just a few little tiny differences. Right. One of them, the big thing, the big thing I'm going to tell you at the end of the day, I'll give you an advanced clue for those of you that are really sharp, the difference is in the titles. Stone put it in the title. Now, let me, let's just look at Hill's title. Think and Grow Rich. Well, it would have been better to say Think to Grow Rich. An even more accurate title would be How to Think to Grow Rich because it's a particular type of thinking. But the implication is just think and you will grow rich. That's the implication. And the fatal flaw word is the just. No, you won't. You can go over there in a corner and think all you want. Think rich all you want. Visualize until you're blue in the face. <laughs> Nothing's going to happen, ever. Cobwebs will form. Nothing will happen. And they'll let you sit there and starve, by the way. This is a hotel. <laughs> There'll be 300 more meetings. They ain't going to move you. They'll just put the flip chart in front of you and leave you over there to die. <laughs> well, the title mis misleads all kinds of people. So the Norman Vincent Peale approach, say, positive expectancy, you get positive results. Yeah. Almost right. Not quite. Got to have a reason for positive expectancy. Then you get positive results. My favorite Akron story. When I grew up here, not very far from here, Fairlawn. Some of you have heard this story, but it's a good story. Places have changed now. I'm sure the activity's the same. There's a street called Market Street. There's a big mall on the corner. And then there's a row of office buildings. And in the office buildings are insurance offices. They all clump together. And then there's across the street from all the insurance offices, there's a little coffee shop, breakfast place, called Egg Castle. And around the corner from that is a bar, a restaurant and bar called the Dry Dock. They're in the same little plaza. So in the morning, in the insurance offices, they have their sales meetings, right? And everybody comes to the sales meeting, all the sales guys. And they all, uh, you know, they, re they listen to a positive tape. And they, uh, they watch a video. And they sing the company song. And they put on their suits. And out the door they go, now charged up, wired up, ready to go. And they go to the coffee shop. <laughs> and, they, and they stop at the coffee shop for the last, you know, dose of courage before going out into the world. Okay. And they're all there at the same time. So all the sales meetings start at the same time, end at the same time. So they're all there. 
if you're standing there, you hear, you hear a Tony Robbins event. I mean, everybody, they're going to go kill him today, man, a million dollar policy, today's the day, and then they all head out. This would be now about 9.15 in the morning. At about 4.15 in the afternoon, they all return to this plaza like vultures to a roost, all at the same time. They don't go to the coffee shop, though, they go to the bar. And by the way, if you ever desperately need to buy insurance, happy hour at a bar. They're all there. Especially if it's free food, two drink minimum, because they come in pairs. One goes to the John, the other guy orders the drinks, and they both eat. That's the deal. So you'll find all the insurance guys at the bar that has a happy hour with free food. That's where you'll find them. So they all come back. Happy hour is always a funny term. So they all come back to the bar. But they've changed during the day. The conversation is now dramatically different. It it, it ain't a Tony Robbins event. It's a funeral. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's all, to use positive and negative terminology, it's all negative. It's all, yeah, hard to sell insurance, the economy's bad, everybody works for a tire company and has insurance, I don't get any good leads. That's what's going on. What happened? Where did all the positivism go? It's bullshit to start with. Didn't take very long for it to go anywhere because it wasn't based on anything. Mm-hmm. They had positive expectancy with no justification. Mm-hmm. Didn't have any good appointments. Hadn't done any good marketing. Didn't have, you know. Well, that's how most business people are. They get up every morning and they kind of pump themselves up to come to the office or the store or the shop or wherever it is they work. Today's going to be a good day. They get in their car, they listen to a tape on the way to the place of business, they get themselves pumped up a little bit. And at the end of the day, when they go home, kick the cat, kick the kid, kick the wife, kick the wall, get a beer. Why? What happened during the day? Bullshit to start with. Didn't have any reason for the positive expectancy. Well, how many, how many pieces of mail did you do? What kind of voice broadcast did you do? No, no, I was just positive. Well, you know, and you go cut it. Mark, Mark Victor Hansen's joke of trying to borrow money from the banker, the banker asked for a statement. He said, I'm positive. <laughs> <laughs> that ain't the statement they were looking for. Saying. So a better approach it's not that you shouldn't have positive expectancy. You've got to have positive expectancy. You should expect my affirmations on the next page. Today's going to be a money day. I believe that every day. There'll be a whole lot more money here at the end of the day than there was at the beginning. Most people, but by the way, don't think that. They think the other way. They think at the end of the day they're going to have less money than they had when they started today. <coughs> Some people even leave their money locked up at home so it doesn't dissipate during the day. They won't carry it with them because it will evaporate. They're afraid it'll go away just during the day. My mother gave my father an allowance. An allowance. 
incredible. Even then I thought, what? <laughs> what? An allowance. And so he would, parse, he would only carry so much with him each day because it had to last a week. And if you carry too much of it with you, it goes away. No, no, no. During the day, you get more. It arrives. You know? It doesn't depart. It arrives. Carry it all with you. There'll be more when you get home. People don't get that. So the positive expectancy is important, but you've got to have a reason. And so the old Dale Carnegie thing is, smile a lot, and you'll be successful. Vance didn't say it yesterday, but Vance's answer to Dale Carnegie was, create a reason to smile a lot. Then you'll smile, then you'll be successful. Yeah. I said last night, you know that Greta Van Susteren woman that does the news talk, you know, that, did you hear Leno's joke? She had the highest, she's had the highest ratings this past week of any of those shows, and so she got her cosmetic surgeon to put a smile on her face. <laughs> But that's, that's sticking it on with no reason to have it, isn't it? And that's what people try and do with this positive thinking stuff. And then they'll tell you positive thinking doesn't work. Right? Because they tried it with no reason to have it. It's the first time I really got interested in marketing is I, I, it dawned on me. I've got all these motivational tapes on the seat of my bad old car. I'm listening to him, got myself pumped up every day, best attitude in the world, no better than the worst attitude in the world if you don't have somebody to use it on who might part with money. If you can't figure out how to get somebody to sit across from you who's got some you could trade something for and use your attitude on them, you might as well have a crappy attitude. It ain't going to hurt you. The trick in the process, it dawned on me, it's not the attitude, it's the guy with the money. And guess what? When you can figure out how to put yourself in front of somebody who's got money who might part with it and trade it to you for something, it's easier to have a good attitude. Hey, this thing works in the opposite direction. A lot easier to create positive expectancy when you have a reason to have it than it is to create positive expectancy with no reason. So most of the people that buy all the tapes and go to all the seminars, they eventually wind up all frustrated and disappointed because they work only on the think part. My friend Foster Hibbert, he had the think part down. What he didn't know how to do was put himself in front of people who had money who would part with it and ask him for it as a missing link. He even got in front of people who had money and would part with it. He just didn't ask. Thought they were just supposed to give it to him because he was thinking right. Well, maybe, maybe has a, has a trick. Dave can get up, go over to somebody make them look them in the eyes, and they'll part with the money. You've got to worry about him. But he's probably the only one in the room who can pull that trick off. 
the rest of us like gotta ask and we gotta hold up something they might want to trade for. He wasn't doing it. Next point. Attract, don't pursue. There's some real nonsense about not being focused on the money. You have all heard, somebody actually asked me this last night. You have all heard the, the approach that says, figure out what it is that you love to do so much, you would do it for free. And then do that as your business, and that's how you will get rich. Your passion will create your wealth. Let's see. I like to lie in a hammock. <laughs> I like to eat pizza. I like to read. I like to watch football. And I like to gamble on horses. I have yet to figure out how to get anybody to pay me to come watch me do any of those activities. <laughs> they won't come. Doesn't matter how much I enjoy it. My enjoyment can multiply and still nobody will come watch me have that joy, let alone pay. It's a flawed formula. It's silly. Businesses have to be market-driven. They can't be your personal joy-driven. Because, right. the, the, see, the money don't care about that, nor does the market. Nowhere, anywhere on the planet today, is there anybody who got out of bed hoping you would have passion and joy. <laughs> Not even your mother <laughs> did that this morning. She had something else on her agenda. Honest. There's not a soul, let alone anybody who would give you money. It's not how it works. Somebody asked me last night, you know, what of this I enjoy, or what of everything I do I enjoy so much I would do it for free. I said, none of it. <laughs> and I mean, they were mystified. Not a thing. Not just mean I don't like it, I like it. Do I draw satisfaction from it? Yes. Do I take pride in the accomplishments of the people? Yes, yes, yes. But I wouldn't do it for free. <laughs> I got a whole list of other things I'd rather do for free. If I'm not going to get paid, I can think of other things to do. This is business. It's an enjoyable way to make a living, but it, it's an enjoyable way to make a living. Mark Twain said, no one but a blockhead writes but for money. Mm -hmm. People forget about that. There's not a whole lot of literature that was created for free. They kind of wanted to get paid. Mm -hmm. So the idea that you don't focus on it is wrong. On the other hand, if you, are, if you are pursuing it from a need position or a desperation position or a uh, money purely for the sake of money position, you probably won't be very successful with that 
either. Money's like consulting clients. There's a perversity of too much pursuit run in the other direction. You've got to figure out how to kind of let it come to you. Now, that's not by going over in the corner and thinking about it. That's by creating positioning, a business structure, a market, a reputation, things that attract and putting them in place. And then you will quickly have people trying to give you more money than you can take and more people trying to give it to you than you can handle. That happens pretty quick, actually. And there's people here in the room who have that problem right, right now. I mean, there's people who are to the point where they have in their business what I call a capacity problem. They don't have a marketing problem. We solved that. Now they got a capacity problem. They got more people trying to do business with them than they can handle. There's a guy who dropped out of our coaching group on the West Coast because in his practice, he's booked out 12 weeks ahead, can't fit anybody in, overloaded with people trying to give him money, has no marketing problems, obviously, <laughs> thinks he has no marketing problems. He's got a capacity problem. And he didn't like the advice about his capacity problem. What do you think the advice is? Yeah, 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 yeah. Multiply himself and keep raising the price until some of them go away. Drive them off. Create a vacuum, then you'll have a marketing problem. That's one I know how to solve. Right? I don't want, well, I don't want him to have a problem I can't solve. I want him to have a problem I know how to solve, right? So keep raising the price until a bunch of them go away. That problem we can fix. <laughs> he didn't get that. Um, I have studiously made a point over many years to do my damnedest to make it look like I'm not trying to get money from anybody except when I sell from the front of the room stuff because nothing else works there. But all the rest of my business, consulting, I go, I go through gyrations to make it look like I'm not trying. I'm reasonably successful at it. And the more of that I do, the more of it I get. Halbert, the first Halbert seminar I spoke at, again, not saying anything I wouldn't say if he was in the room, he'd say it himself, fatally flawed individual but 95% right. First Halbert seminar I spoke at, $7,000 person seminar. About this many people in the room. Didn't know Gary very well. Gary shows up 10 minutes late, wanders out on stage. We're in Florida, so this is somewhat defensible, but he wanders out on stage. He's got on shorts, flip-flops, one of them net shirts, you know, what, hole, what looks like it's got holes on it, mesh shirts, I'm talking about. Cap on. Cap says, clients suck. <laughs> Big letters. Can't miss it. See it all over the back of the room. In case you missed it, he points it out. 
mm -hmm. does the first 20 minutes on how miserable all the clients are, how he doesn't even want the ones he's got, doesn't want any more, don't be asking me to do anything, don't try and hire me, don't follow me to the restroom and bother me on the breaks, leave me alone, I don't want any work. They're surrounding him at the urinal. <laughs> Everybody's trying to hire him. Everybody's giving him money. By the end of the seminar, I don't know, eight, ten, twelve, twenty-five thousand dollars copyright insurance. Had he done it the other way, would have got less. Would have got less. All of the inaccessibility I do. Now, that is personal preference. And in some respects, it started out of necessity. But largely, that's marketing for me. That's intentional. The harder it is to get to me, the less price resistance there is when they finally do. They're already past price resistance. They're just focused on getting me. They're not focused on price anymore. I can charge whatever I damn well want to. Hardly ever comes up. Some don't even ask. They're just so thrilled to have finally tracked the guy down and gotten him to talk to him. They ain't going to screw it up. Well, that's strategy. Get it? <laughs> That's not, I mean, I am antisocial and all that, but I mean, but, 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 but it's deliberate. It's intentional. It's a means of letting it come to me. I've done a lot of things to put myself in a position where there's a whole herd of people to draw and all that, but, so you can't really chase it. But you can't be afraid to focus on it either. The two things are not mutually exclusive. They're not incongruent. They're congruent. I got 12 o'clock, a little bit after, but um, you guys need a full hour and a half today? We've been doing hour and a half. Do you need a full hour and a half? No. Hour and 15 minutes is good? Okay. One fifteen. Page 28 and beyond. Not that this is uh, unique with him, but uh, Foster introduced me to one of the most, oh, I know what I want to talk about first real quick. Had a good question. The question is, the question that was asked, as best I can see if I can get it verbatim, is, is the only way you measure success money? And Here's, here's, here's an analogy answer and then a direct answer. The analogy answer is, is that there's a, 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 a movement gaining some ground um, in academic environments, um, in, in school and amateur sports, to eliminate keeping score. Uh, because doing so damages 
the self-esteem of the kiddies who don't win the game. So, this, hey, this has gained enough ground. You apparently don't recall, maybe, but right after uh, a Bush II got elected, they put in a big softball deal on the White House lawn, and they had the kids' softball tournament thing there, and they played the game with no score. And if anybody ought to know better, it'd be him. Um, uh, I mean, you want to count every point, don't you? Um, um, so this deal is gaining ground. The idea being you should play the game for the benefits of playing the game and the building of self-esteem and character and teamwork and camaraderie and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and not muck up that whole process by keeping score. The problem with that is it's a game. And by definition, if you don't keep score, there's no game. The answer to the question is, in business, yes. The way you score success has to be with monetary points. It's the only way to measure success. Now, if you want to expand it to a big philosophical conversation about success in life, no, not necessarily the most. The issue is getting what you want. And in money terms, that's a different number probably for everybody in the room. And by the way, it's pretty useful to know your numbers. Um, uh, uh, and there are all sorts of other issues, you know. Are your kids healthy? Are your kids smart? Do they get at least to age 18 while they're under your uh, supervision without being drug addicts or criminals or marching into a school with a shotgun and blowing away people, and if you accomplish that, that's certainly uh, a part and parcel of a definition of success. Um, the problem with all of that other stuff is it's very hard to measure. You know, uh, does your self-esteem improve during life? Well, it's hard to measure. Uh, but in business, we can measure, and we measure with dollar units. We measure how we improve the value of each customer. We measure our profit margin. Not necessarily gross dollars is not the only measurement, but all the measurements are dollars. And all the measurements should be dollars because it's the only way we can measure. So the couple of people that were disturbed by all that, there you go. Now, uh, Foster introduced me um, to a very interesting idea that, as the FDA says about health products, I have only anecdotal evidence for you. Um, there are no double-blind, placebo-based studies that I know of to prove the efficacy of what I'm about to tell you, and I'm going to give you the short course. Um, he managed to get two days out of this. Um, <laughs> Uh, well, the truth is you can get two days out of just about anything if you really take a whack at it. Um, <laughs> I mean, hey, you can get two days out of having people come and stand up and do all the work themselves. Um, um, <laughs> um, hey, if I'd known the options guys were going to be down the hall, you know, I could have sent you all down there for half a day. Got, um, Talk about the less 
<laughs> um, uh, Foster taught, and it's a, it's a discipline that I now have used for many years, and I know there are some people in the room who use it. Um, uh, Jeff Paul and I share it in common. Jeff adheres to it exactly as Foster taught it. Um, Foster taught the wealth account and the saving account. But the premise behind this, so that you understand that first, because the mechanics are extremely simple. The premise is, is that, um, remember that everything is programming, and so the subconscious mind is programmed by everything to either uh, uh, sense and multiply prosperity or sense and multiply poverty. It's the two judgments it's always making. Uh, about what it is that you are. And so the premise is, is that by having habits that reinforce the idea of prosperity, you attract more of it. That's the premise. And the key word there is habit. And most people's habits, of course, are, you know, we, got, we all got a long list of ones we'd probably be better off without. These happen to be two that work pretty well. So now the mechanics are pretty simple. The mechanics are as follows. Two bank accounts that are different from all of your other bank accounts. And now you can get fancy with this and do money market accounts. For the giving account, you can do a charitable trust account, you know, far beyond anything I should be talking to you about. I don't care what kind of accounts you do. But they're two separate accounts. One is a wealth account, which gets labeled that. <coughs> the other is a giving account. When we taught this to the doctors, by the way, we finally, in fact, I don't know if you know this, Tracy, Rodney and I, I don't know if Tracy's in the room, but Rodney and I went and got a bank to do this. We made all the doctors open up their wealth accounts at least 500 miles away from their office. <laughs> Restricted to written withdrawals only. So it would be inconvenient to tap it. Because the idea of the wealth account is it's keepsies. It's supposed to accumulate. You know, when it reaches certain points, you may want to take the money out of the wealth account and put it into something that draws a higher rate. But you're not supposed to be buying cars and clothes and jewelry and stuff with it. So you got two separate accounts. You have one that is your wealth account and you have one that is your giving account. The, you then establish a minimum percentage of every dollar that comes to you that is going to go into each of those two accounts, therefore not being used for anything other than the purposes of those two accounts. Now, as Foster used to say, zero percent is too small. <laughs> And uh, most people, uh, you know, a good range is somewhere between 1 and 10 percent. And so most people want to make the wealth account 10 percent and the giving account 1 percent. And uh, that's okay if you start there. You'll pretty quickly change, change, change your uh, mind uh, for reasons that we'll talk about in a second. But so each of these accounts is a separate account from anything else you do. And into it you will deposit somewhere between 1 and 10 percent, pick a number. Uh, of all of the money that comes to you. Now that, that part's important, the all part. And it doesn't matter whether it's income, capital gains, 
money you find in the street, somebody who owed you money you never thought you were going to get back, shows up and pays you, none of that matters. The fixed percentage, yeah, I'm not, I shouldn't do this, but go, what, what, what's your problem? What? Percentage of the net or the gross? No, gross. gross. Here we go. <laughs> net. If you do net, there'll never be any deposits. Okay? Garner's still looking for the net from Rockford Files, you know? There's a saying in Hollywood, there taint no net. You know? You'll have everything coming off of there before. No, gross. Well, if I take 10, 20% of my gross, I'll know, because your gross will expand. That's what this does. This is not like take away 20%, only have 80 left. You'll take away the 20 and you'll have 200% left. Hard math for the engineers in the room to get. But, but, <laughs> but I mean, you should be able to get that math. You're looking at me like a deer in headlights. <laughs> You're the metaphysical, you know, sandals guy. You should be able, you know. <laughs> For God's sakes, you're charging people to press their body with thumbs and reconnect their electrical circuits. And you're looking at me like I'm doing something weird? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Here for $4,000, whoop, your circuits are reconnected. You feel better? Oh, I feel great. And he's, and he's looking at me like I'm crazy. Just stay with me for a minute. Mm -hmm. Percentage, somewhere between 1% and 10% of your gross into each one of the two accounts and all the gross. Gift from grandma, found money, sell your house, sell your car. Okay. Into the accounts goes the money. Second key part of the formula. The frequency of the deposits. The more frequent, the better. Get money, make a deposit. If you put money into your regular account, the same day should be the deposit into the wealth account and into the giving account. This is not something you clean up once a month, not something you clean up once a year at tax time, not something you clean up when you get around to it, because not for mechanical reasons, for subconscious programming reasons. The frequency matters, because every time you make the deposits, you're telling this thing, oh, I'm doing really great because I'm making deposits to my wealth account and my giving account. Okay, so it's the programming purpose. The actual locking up of the money is even less important than is the process and what it does to your subconscious system. So the frequency of the deposits is important. I actually, because I know you guys want to know what I do, I'm actually depositing ahead. I mean, now, he never taught this, but then he never had one of my other weird habits. I'm slow at making bank deposits. This will be foreign to people. And I'm not necessarily recommending this, but I'm, I know you want to know what I do, so I'll tell you what I do. Like Ted Thomas is, I think Ted's here, and he's frustrated because he gave me a check in January. We haven't deposited yet. Um, <laughs> I run three weeks, four weeks, five weeks behind. I shouldn't tell you that because every once in a while I do one on time, so if you're counting on float. <laughs> um, 
Um, there's a problem with this truth business, you know? Um, but anyway, I let them lay around for a while. And then I do big deposits. Some because I'm busy, some because I like the programming of having so much money coming in, I don't even have time to deposit. So I let it pile up. Um, but I do these deposits at least every week as the money comes in, even if I haven't got the money into my regular accounts. So I'm actually ahead of the game in these rather than simultaneous, and most people want to try and trail. Right. So frequency is important. Right. So the money goes into these two accounts, and it should be a fixed percentage of all of the gross that comes to you. Um, and it should be, the deposit should be done as frequently as is humanly possible. Now, Foster used to teach, except for the doctors, because they would all steal the money back out of their wealth account. He used to teach going and doing it physically. And I think he's right, by the way. I think there is something to the physical act of taking it in and handing it across the counter and all of that. However, we're all busy people, and so I will confess to you that I don't do it. Okay, mine go by mail or FedEx. Um, and, uh, and I try not to set foot in a bank any more often than is necessary. Um, but so that's now the mechanics. Now, the money's in there. In the wealth account, if you want to take money out, it should only be for transfers to other appreciating assets, not depreciating assets, like real investments. And I know a set of golf clubs is an investment in happiness and peace of mind. That's not what I'm talking about. Like, I don't take any money out of my wealth account to feed the racehorses. I mean, that money's got to come from someplace else. Well, you know, it's the old deal. I mean, you know, I got eight, well, I got 16 horses now, and they all eat while I sleep. And the ones that we have in partnership, I got the end it eats. <laughs> um, and they're usually only lame in one leg at a time, and it's always on my end of the horse, too. I don't know how to, um, all right, so we got these two accounts, in flows the money. And in it goes as frequently as is humanly possible. Mm -hmm. We used to get the chiropractors to do it like twice a day. Do all your money that came in before noon, make your deposits. Do all the money at the end of the day, make your deposits. Do it twice a day. Mm -hmm. The more frequently you do it, the better the programming, because this is all about repetition. Mm -hmm. So now the money's in there. The money can come out of the wealth account only for other wealth purposes. Mm -hmm. The money can come out of the giving account only for giving purposes. Now, back to the math. The wealth math, everybody gets, right? If I got $100, gee, I wonder where the torn 100 went. It's a bellhop somewhere with a roll of tape. <laughs> it's all right. That's what it's for. Um, so, um, I hope it's a bellhop and not one of you. Um, you ought to know, by the way, as an aside, cheapskate behavior is poverty consciousness based. It's not prosperity consciousness based. You, you schmucks that are carrying around the little chart to figure out precisely 14.8% tip on a restaurant check, you know, and are worrying about redeeming a coupon, it ain't helping. 
Um, so we got $100. We put 10 of them into our wealth account. We lock it up. It's our wealth account. We only take the money out for things that build our wealth. Just about everybody has no problem with that. When I heard it, I didn't have any problem with it. I got, okay, I get that, because I, I still got the 10, right? I just took it and I put it over here, but I still got it, okay? It's still mine and it's growing, right? So that I got, okay? It's the other part of the math that's kind of difficult to get, right? Because you take the 10 and you make it go away. And somehow now you got more money, not less money. I said, no, I don't have to five. Buy that. Okay. The odd thing about it is he's right. Okay. And the principles on one of the pages here, I don't know what the devil it is now, but here it is, right here. You can, it multiplies by disappearing. It's the damnedest thing I've ever seen. You give it away and you somehow wind up with more of it coming in. And you can't possibly believe it until you do it. Hey, doesn't, hey, doesn't take long though. Try it for a month. A month. You'll see the results. It makes no sense. There's not a math course in the world. It makes no sense. But it happens. Now, here's a real important caveat, though. Your next page. Here's one you guys may not like, like so well. Do this for the right reason. This is strategy, not obligation. It's the only way I ever bought it. So maybe it'll help some of you buy it. See, most people's giving is all reactive. It's forced upon them. It's sold to them. They're put into a confined space and guilted into doing it. No offense intended, but that's the, that's the church service. We put them in a confined space. We pass the plate from person to person. We make sure we have a plate where you hear things when you drop them in, just like the metal tray in a slot machine in Vegas. Okay. And everybody feels like a schmuck if they don't put something in. Every once in a while, somebody takes one out. Okay. And a few people figure out they can have a little thing and bang it against the side of the plate. But, 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 but well, look. Um, but basically, it works. Works with a small group, works with a big group. Works if it's Benny Hinn with 10,000 people in an arena. Works if it's 30 people in an United Appeal, 80% of the money is raised where? In the workplace, under pressure. Um, almost all nonprofit charity fundraising requires all the same marketing principles we use to sell stuff. They just don't deliver anything tangible for the process. But almost all giving is done for the wrong reasons. It's done because they're guilty about what they have. Now, here's a real clue. 
the really wealthy people don't give for those reasons. The Ted Turners and the Bill Gates of the world are not giving out of guilt or compulsion or obligation. They're giving for very practical reasons. On one side of the practical ledger, they're giving because they're buying PR. They're buying it. On the other side of the practical ledger, they're giving because they have figured this thing out. One way or another, they have discovered this odd financial formula that you give it away and you get it back plus some, which makes no sense. But it works that way. But you, you should be doing it for the right reasons. Now, the last thing, of course, to talk about is who do you give it to? Far be it from me. And it don't matter. Your choices are your choices. I will, however, because there's curiosity about me, I will tell you some things. I'm not a big fan of organized charities. I've done enough work for enough of them that, uh, with rare exception, I'm not a big fan. Um, they're too close to the government in their economics. All right. Get in 100, 70% for us, 20% to raise more money, 10% to actually do something for somebody. Um, not my favorite formula. Give you a little, insi little inside secret a lot of people don't know. If you give to any one of the big charities and you get their annual report, there's going to be a wheel in it, you know, a diagram, and it's going to show how much money went to services, how much money went to education, how much money went to overhead, etc. And one of the big ones is education. Here's what counts as education. They need, in four pages of anything, they need a paragraph of educational information or navigation to a place you can get educational information to count the entire expense of all of that as education. So I can take a fundraising letter and I can put a little paragraph at the bottom of it that says if you suffer from X, whatever the X is we're raising the money for, then you can go to www.whatsis and get information about X. And I can take the whole cost of the fundraising mailing and not show it in fundraising. I can show it in education. There's a similar little glitchiness to services. So if you really want to know the deal, you take the wheel and you take about two-thirds of what's in services out and move that over to fundraising. And you take about two-thirds of what's in education out and move that over to fundraising. And now you've got the right wheel. That still may not dissuade you. And that's okay, but, um, but uh, a lot of what I choose to do is direct. And there's a habit that goes with this I would suggest to you. I think it's a good habit. Over-tip the people who do a good job. Most of these working folks are, first of all, working harder than you are. But secondly, uh, most of them, you know, are raising families, they're paying bills, they're, and they don't know what we know. They're economically ignorant. So they don't know how to fix where they are. But they do good work. Overtip them. It counts. Mm -hmm. I go on a trip, I take 100 bucks out of my giving account, I get it divided into tens, and I overtip. 
For me, that counts. It's also another reinforcement habit. Because just like making a giving deposit twice a day, if you're giving away the money 10 times a day, Rockefeller used to take rolls of pennies, when a penny was worth something with them every day, and give pennies out to the street urchins. Start the day with two rolls of pennies every day and give away pennies. Now, why did Rockefeller do that? Do you, if you've read anything about Rockefeller, you can't possibly think it's because he had this enormous amount of love and compassion and concern for the street urchins. That wasn't it. Somehow he got somewhere, give away a bunch of pennies, somehow I get more dollars. Amazing he never figured out, give them dollars. <laughs> give them a buck. So there's the mechanics of this whole process. It's as weird as the day is long, and if you do it for 30 days, you'll never stop. It ties to your page 33. Most people are very, very, very uncomfortable with money. They don't carry much of it. They keep it locked up someplace. You won't wander into their office or house and see it laying around anywhere. People cringed when I tore the $100 bill. Bothers them. Not everybody, but I mean, there's faces who cringed. Um, years ago, I used to bring somebody up and make them set fire to one in an ashtray in front of their own. And as Dave knows, if you pick, you, know, you pick the right person, you really get a reaction. <laughs> um, it makes people very, you know, very uncomfortable. They don't get it. It's paper. So most people are very uncomfortable with money. Um, uh, money's attracted to somebody who's okay with it. That's really what all this is about. And so the physicality of it can help you being more at ease with it and more casual with it. You should carry some, like all the time. I mean, who knows, you might want to buy something. And even today, you might be someplace, they don't take plastic. It still happens. You don't get the same subconscious thing from spending with plastic. You get from handling the money. I know, tax deductions, receipts, yeah, I know, I know. And I use credit cards too, but put some cash around you. Don't be so uptight about it, you've got to have it all locked up tight, all wrapped up somewhere. Leave it lay around. Coins are good. Come home at the end of the day, dump all your change, but dump them all and pile up someplace visible. You know, not hid away in a box someplace. I got like five spots in my house. I got big bundles of them, vases, glass jars, pots, baskets, pile it up. Got one in my car, you know, change cup, great big, you know, why don't you ever dump that? Oh, I do dump it, but I like a full one. <laughs> don't want an empty one, different message, right? So when I dump it, I just skim the top off and then I put it back. Have something, be casual about money. 
take some with you, spend it, lay it around, let it build up a little bit before you do anything with it. The stuff, honest to God, it attracts itself. It multiplies. And most people are real, real uncomfortable about it. And the worst thing you can do is totally deal with it only on paper, where you never see it. God, I hate direct deposit. This idea of the check directly into one of your clients forces you to do that, that's no fun. <laughs> I want to handle the checks. I do all my own bank deposits, always have, for years. I don't want anybody doing bank deposits but me. One of the reasons is I want the, uh, the action, the impact of doing the bank deposit, of seeing the checks, making out the bank deposit slip. People delegate that. Why would you delegate that? That's good subconscious programming. Don't delegate the thing that helps you make more money. It's not a task, it's a celebration. Handle the stuff. Um, then you have psychological triggers. There's about, I counted them up, and I meant to make a list, and I didn't make a list. So. But if you carefully went through my house and my office, you'd find over 250 deliberately placed, acquired and placed visual psychological triggers. Now this is anything from, from money laying around to the, to the million dollar bill stuck up someplace, to uh, a collection of foreign currency framed on the wall, to uh, money plates, to a photograph or a plaque or something that means something to you. Um, you, to books with the covers visible. You would be hard-pressed in my work environment to look in any direction, high, low, or in between, and not see something that was visually representative of wealth. That's not an accident, and it's not because it's my decor choice. It's because it helps. Mm -hmm. There's also about a hundred psychological triggers that have to do with time, because I'm very big on making time work. I got a lot of clocks. Half of them haven't got reset since the... <laughs> but, you know, they're still there nagging. They're just wrong, um, which, you know, describes people, too. <laughs> <laughs> The caption says, when you said you were rich, I never dreamed you were this rich. <laughs> point being, it's all relative to what people's experience has been, right? What their exposure has been. I mean, you're, you're welcome to, I mean, in, indoor plumbing, you know, for some people, big deal, right? Um, which brings us to who you hang around with who you associate with. Okay, there's a nice big list on page 35. But the one biggie is you don't want to be hanging around with people who think that's rich, whose perception is a lot smaller than what yours is or what you want to be. They will restrict you. 
you can't, you can't make yourself immune to these influences. Television programs you watch, books you read, but by far the people you associate with. Because their association gangs up on you. You know, there's more of them than there is of you. And if they're all walking around with poverty consciousness, or a lot less prosperity consciousness than you have, they will bring your game down to their level. You can't help it. But you can avoid them. Nobody says you got to hang out with them. Lots of people. Almost unlimited supply of people as there is money. You can replace your friends. You can limit the time you spend with them. You can get new friends. You can elevate your game. Uh, here's a little side tip about this. I have a test I suggest to everybody about the people they choose to associate with in a business way. I have several clients who devoutly wish they had listened to me about this test. I can name three that it's probably cost them at least a million apiece hard cold cash to ignore this piece of advice. I can name one it's cost them 15 million and I can name another it's cost 20. Then now I'm sure there's some I don't know about. Nobody ever likes to hear I told you so and so there's a short supply of people who you know and to Jerry's credit for example not this but a whole nother issue um, I got a fax from Jerry what a week ago or two weeks ago the headline on it says, Jerry Jones is an ass. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, wasn't that the headline? Jones is a big ass. Jones is a big ass, yeah. And it's a confession about a little bet he and I had about a piece of advice he didn't like that, um, you know, every once in a while, I've already made that mistake, usually more than once. Um, so here's the test. And it's really very simple. And when you hear it, it's very sane, but it's amazing how people can figure out a rationalization to ignore it. Here's the test. You're going to associate with somebody in business. They got to be able to give you the names and phone numbers of at least three people they've done a deal with who would do another one with them. Now that ain't asking much. Out of somebody, I mean, everybody's got people that don't like them. I can give you a long list of people who would back a car over me, okay? but I can provide a few good references. I mean, out of somebody's whole life, three is not a lot to ask for, is it? If they can't produce three, everybody they've ever been involved with would never be involved with them again. What makes you think you're going to be the exception? Right? You're not going to be an exception. You're going to be roadkill just like everybody else. But smart people ignore this test. Very smart people because they find ways to rationalize because they want the end result the guy's promising. They find ways to rationalize their way around this test. It's even a good test, bigger, broader. You know, just letting them into your world. If they can't give you three people who have really good things to say about them, who aren't related, I mean, 
three is not asking a lot. You would also be surprised at how many people can't come up with three. Every one of these people, my clients should not have done business with, couldn't come up with three. I knew they couldn't come up with three. If they had just done the test, they wouldn't have come up with three. One of them couldn't come up with one. <laughs> one he couldn't come up with, I promise you. So you don't want to be around that person and you don't want to be around them. When they, when, when they go bad or blow up or self-destruct or whatever it is that's happened to them repetitively that is going to happen to them again, you don't want to be within like collateral damage range. You know, barn falls over, it knocks over a fence and then the fence falls on you. You didn't have to be in the barn, you just had to be close. So you got to be very careful for practical reasons as well as programming reasons who the devil you hang out with. Now here's a goodie. Page, well, I'll tell you this first. Name James McDermott mean anything to anybody? That's a cool story. No, there may be one, but this guy was actually, Dennis, I'm surprised. This guy was head of one of the biggest investment banking firms in the world of investment banking. Um, and a very uh, wealthy and prominent and powerful person. You will remember the story without remembering the name because very recently he was very publicly uh, prosecuted and sent to jail for insider trading for giving stock tips to a stripper who he was hanging out with. And now you nod, it resonates with you. Now on the surface, if you're this guy who through a couple of linked indiscretions and bad decisions, you have wiped out your reputation, your business, your family, your house, the works, and you are off to sit in the joint for six months or a year, this probably does not look like a piece of good news. However, interesting story about him. If he hadn't been in the joint, where he would have been is up at his big, fancy, giant office in the World Trade Center on September 11th where 66 of his former employees were, and they all died. Because his office is right where the thing came in. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now being in the joint's a pretty good piece of good news. <laughs> and that's the principle. The principle is a big characteristic of wealthy and successful people is resiliency, and where it comes from is understanding and believing that ultimately all news is good news. Now you couldn't have sold this to McDermott when they're putting on the cuffs. Couldn't have sold it to any one of us either. Turns out though, piece of good news. Because the other piece of news was worse. If you don't buy this, you never really get any momentum going. 
because you're always kind of starting and stopping, is you get pieces of what appears to be bad news. I don't have time to do what I originally intended to do, but here's a little list of some, at the time, pieces of bad news, unpleasant things, things that didn't work out for me, but what they led to. And so every one of these things embodies a day or more days where it was bad news. And every one of these things embodies a whole lot of good news that arguably would never have occurred were it not for the unpleasant experience in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, you might notice not being able to go to college. Hey, I avoided college. Um, um, I, um, well, you can't see all the way down the bottom, can you? There, there's the rest of them for you. Um, uh, I, for example, um, really my very first close business relationship, uh, learned an enormous amount from this guy, but also went through absolute hell with this guy. And uh, it's not really a piece of good news when you are a very young guy and your now business partner uh, is arrested, prosecuted, and sent to jail. And um, you know, between him and his brother, I think we went through $300,000 trying to get him out. And it was $300,000 neither one of us had. Um, um, at the time, you can't do this anymore, by the way. At the time, the banking system was kind of slow. And so you could get multiple credit cards if you were willing to drive all around into different counties, because they did the thing by county. And so if you applied for them all on the same day, you got multiple credit cards. I mean, I think I got $60,000 worth of plastic all in one day. Um, now, when they catch up later, they're not happy. But, um, and I mean, I buried my ass in debt. Uh, and at the time, none of this looked good. But there's a whole lot of things I wouldn't know and might never have known were it not for that experience. I probably wouldn't have found my way into speaking without that relationship. Uh, and so what looks really ugly and unpleasant at any one given time is more often than not, in fact, maybe in the 90 percentile range. I mean, there's some obvious exception, exceptions, terminal illness, um, but especially short-term terminal illness, um, you know, like, hey, tomorrow. Um, <laughs> Um, but, uh, but setting the obvious exceptions aside, for the most part, if you backtrack every wealthy entrepreneur's list of life experiences, you build a list like my list. You build all these points in time where they were in misery, or they were humiliated, or they were broke, or they were in trouble, or something horrible happened to them. But then you can draw out from that one thing, two things, three things, four things, five things that arguably could never have happened without that, all of which are good. Iacocca, when they fired him from Ford, everybody figured he's dead. You're never going to see this guy doing anything of any importance again. Turns out the best thing that ever happened to him. Didn't look like it the day it happened. Didn't look like it the week, the weeks. He's getting beat up in the press, you know, as the loser of the month. 
didn't look good at all. But arguably, the whole rest of the career wouldn't have been possible if he had stayed buried at Ford. Right? And everybody's got this list. The trick is to know it and respond appropriately. That's the hard part when the bad stuff happens, is to get out the other side looking for the good stuff quick. Most people, it takes a long time to recover. Successful people have quick recovery, real quick, because they know. I mean, as dumb as it sounds, it's, oh boy, there's going to be some new good stuff now, because boy, this was a pile of shit. Mm -hmm. All right? I mean, this is just not good. So, hey, something, I'm going to find something in this. All right. Um, Watson founded IBM and had a, he was famous when somebody comes say, we've got a big problem, he'd say, great. Yeah, yeah, Watson, yeah. And, you know, it's easy to give lip service to, obviously, as well as to try and be entertaining about, but it's a really very serious point. And the people I've been around, uh, again, who, bring, who, who really, like, give the Midas touch when it comes to money, they're really very good at this. I mean, this is not, this is not hype. I mean, this is the way they respond, is boom, some horrible disaster happens, and they are immediately out the other side of it, you know, like hours or days at best, whereas most people, it's weeks, months, average people, it's years or never, you know, but they could be, they're just not. Uh, I had, I told you, I had two cars re repoed in the same year, and, um, um, uh, one of them was repossessed in front of a seminar. Um, uh, everybody is standing in a room with a big glass front on it, looking out at the parking lot, all mingling before going in the back for the deal. And um, they're repoing my car, which is parked right in front of the place. Everybody knows what my car looks like. And I know what they're doing. I mean, it's the second one, see, I knew. Um, first one you don't know, but the second one, you know, that ain't no car thief. Um, and uh, at the time, I said very loudly, oh, excuse me, they're here to go de de detail my car. <laughs> and uh, I went out, rapped on the window, and the repo person hesitantly bound a window down this far, and very visibly in front of everybody, I handed him a couple hundred dollars. I'm probably the most surprised repo person. <laughs> Maybe the only repo person ever to get a tip in the history of America. Uh, I didn't have a giving account at the time. Um, um, uh, but, uh, uh, but I called home and said, hey, good news, we're getting a new car. Um, uh, now, it's a minor example, and it's meant to be funny, but it is, it is a very necessary reaction. And it is the way that wealthy and successful people react to these things that happen. And like the joke I made earlier, I mean, the emotional issues of the end of a marriage aside, um, the sudden disappearance of half of your money. Um, 
is an interesting motivating factor. Um, but I mean, seriously, well, the first thing about the money that came into my mind was somebody else is paying. I don't like the number, but somebody else is paying. I got to pay. So really, the number doesn't matter. Right? It doesn't. It could have been twice what it was. Might have been a little grumpier for a few days, but I mean, somebody else go pay for it anyway. I just got to call in some more. You know, and yeah, I might have to do a little more work, but you know, I'm young. Um, but actually, I haven't. I just raised prices, by the way. And everybody else pays. Y'all paid. Um, so, if you liked her, congratulations. Glad to help out. Yeah. <laughs> Section two. Let's do some practical stuff. Before we take a break, we'll do one, we'll, 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 we'll do the very first start of the practical stuff. I'll give you the biggie, 43. Here it is. This is as simple as you can get about wealth. Only two things you got to do. Be the wizard and beware them. Be the wizard and beware of the wizards. Get that? You kind of got it. All commerce is fundamentally based on mysticism. Here's somebody left this up here to show me one thing. I found something else I wanted, but I don't know who left this up here. But you actually, I wanted. Th I want this, but. Here's a full-page ad, direct response ad in some paper. Is this your local? Oh, yeah, it's all direct response ads wedged into a page. Okay. And we're giving away free coins. We got some whiz-bang new device that's the secret key to weight loss. Uh, we got a smart clock that uses a satellite in, on the moon to correct itself. We got weight loss gear, popular spa weight loss gear being given away free, and then it's a weight loss product, patent lean, um, which of course has magic patented ingredients that nobody else has from Kuala Lumpur that uh, burns off the fat while you sleep and makes you not want to eat and grows hair. <laughs> Welcome to commerce. Okay? Now, you know, we tell everybody to study the National Enquirer and everybody assumes their customers are smarter than that, but see at all levels. The seminar down the hall. Watch, it's all mysticism. There's a wizard who's got a secret for making money with options that nobody else knows. And everybody has come to the wizard to get the secret. It's all about Steve Wynn. We were talking about Steve Wynn at lunch. Steve Wynn decides he's going to build in Las Vegas, which is currently overbuilt, in a recession. He's going to now build, since he sold the Mirage and the, all the other properties, the Bellagio, he's now going to build the biggest ever. It's the biggest, the tallest, the widest, the fattest, the most expensive 
casino hotel anywhere in the world. Hmm? The ground floor casino has a full-service Lamborghini dealership in the casino. He raised the money for that. They went public and raised the money like this. I forget how many. Does anybody know the number, how much he raised? I don't remember the number, but it's, it's like a hundred-something million dollars. More than that. Yeah? It was more than that. It was more than that. And it was like, you know, 20, half a billion. Okay, and it's all in in 24 hours. Why? Because it's Steve Wynn. That's why. The plan, to me, is preposterous. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't matter. He's the wizard of Las Vegas. He did the Mirage. He did Treasure Island. He, he transformed the Strip. Now he's the wizard. Right? So the first part of this is you've got to find a way to some constituency that will give you money to position yourself as a wizard. You've got to be magical. You've got to have secrets. You've got to be what they want to be. You've got to present them with a picture that mesmerizes them. Then the second step is be careful not to fall victim to anybody else playing the same game. Well, you know, my friend Bill Brooks's definition, you know, the consultant is the guy who knows 365 sexual positions and can't get a date any night of the week. Uh -huh. um, you know, experts, see, we make ourselves into experts. Well, so do the other experts. And it's dangerous. Now, there's good experts. I'm one of them. But you've got to use a lot of discretion here. Mm -hmm. Because the tendency in all of us, which is why the first part works so well, <laughs> the tendency is to want to give up responsibility, control, authority, liability to somebody else who is bigger, faster, wiser than we are. Mostly because it gets us out of responsibility. And we're all guilty. That's why this works. So what you want to do is use it but not be used by it. And as long as you're going to play the game, you might as well play the game to win. See, everybody does the be a wizard thing. Anybody in business does it. Most just do it badly. Most just do it a little bit. So the media, you guys have all watched by now probably at least once Dr. Phil. It's not bad. He says some smart things. Mostly, though, he's regurgitating Alabama sayings from the 1950s. You know? I mean, if you watch Letterman when they do the Dr. Phil Minute of the Night, but, you know, I mean, I, I, I've now lost count of the number of times his answer to somebody's problem is if mama ain't happy, nobody's happy. <laughs> well, you know, that. It may be true, but it ain't new, you know? Um, he actually said to somebody the other day, if you come to a fork in the road, you should take it. I mean, um, now I'll tell you, here's a couple of interesting things about this Dr. Phil guy. 
right now in America, there are probably, how many, does anybody know, um, uh, Bob Olick would, would, would know, is Bob, okay, 100, how many? Okay, there's 140,000 psychologists, therapists in private practice, and 139,000 of them are pissed off because they look at Phil and they say, I got better credentials, I'm a better therapist, I've been at the game longer, I work harder, he has no right to be there. And they're stomping around mad. And the more they see him, the madder they'll get, to the point that their anger completely, completely blinds them to learning anything from what it is that they are seeing. National Speakers Association, where we live, it's 5,000 members, probably 2,500 of them are doing personal growth stuff, and 2,499 of them, every time they click on the TV and say, and see Tony, they want to just kill somebody. <laughs> they, well, you know from the NLP crowd. There's a whole slew of NLP guys walking around, starving, yeah. and what they all have in common now is they're all mad at Robbins. All right? How dare he? They don't get, they don't learn the lesson. These guys, Phil got an opportunity, and he took it. You know, he was the jury consultant in Oprah's hamburger trial. And then he was on the Oprah show. And now he's the biggest thing. He's going to wind up bigger in Oprah if he doesn't follow it up. And all those other therapists may be right. Everything they say may be right. They may be better than him. They may be, but see, but they didn't get this. They haven't gone to work to make themselves into the whiz. And he's making himself into the whiz. So the money's in being the wizard. You can be small in a constituency. You can be big. There's money in small numbers, as you know. But this is an important principle. And we'll talk more about it when we come back in 15 minutes. Here's why people give money to other people. Literally, why money moves. And you will see several of them have to do with the wizard position. So those are the ones I want to talk about. One is this issue of authority. And I'm going to say several things to you about authority. One is the transfer of responsibility. Understand the vast majority of people. And again, we got to be careful not to be guilty of the same thing. Make a lot of choices and a lot of decisions to relieve themselves of responsibility for their own actions. Hire a money manager. You laughed, we laughed, yeah, I know. Well, you know, Dennis, no disrespect, but you know, it's the Woody Allen joke. I'll manage your money until there's no money left to manage. <laughs> um, but, but, but seriously, why do most people do it? Why? Because they're off from under the responsibility for the result. Mm -hmm. If it goes good, they get to take the credit because they picked the guy. I'm a genius, I picked him. If it goes bad, they got somebody to blame. Cabot Robert, one of the kindest, gentlest guys ever to walk the planet, the only sort of semi-mean thing I ever heard him say was, 
most people are walking around with their umbilical cord in hand looking for a new place to plug it in. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of money in being the place to plug it in. Mm -hmm. They're all doing it. I sat, um, uh, how many of you remember Est, have paid, paid some attention to Est? Um, yeah, LifeSpring after that, if you didn't pay attention to Est, LifeSpring was like Est, or now the Forum, which is what used to be Est. For those of you that don't know, at one time, Est was the big thing in personal development for a variety of reasons. Um, uh, but uh, Werner Erhard, I, I sat, I had my hair cut next to Werner in, in, in Pat Fripp's hair salon in San Francisco when Pat Fripp still had, was not a speaker. She, she was speaking part-time, but she had a hair salon in the financial district. And um, I was there doing a seminar and went and got my hair done at Pat's place and Werner Erhard's in a chair next to me. And uh, so we, you know, we had a conversation. And one of the things I said to Werner, we had a conversation about sell it by zealot was what most of our, which is their marketing method. But I said, boil the whole S thing down for me in a sentence. He said, no problem. He said, we sell independence and breed dependence. Now, you can call it the most cynical thing you've ever heard, or you can call it accurate thinking. Take your pick. Okay. But you know, of the 17 principles in Think and Grow Rich, the one people like the least, but he did include it, is accurate thinking. It's the one everybody is least interested in, because it's a little uncomfortable to deal with it. But if you don't have an accurate assessment of the marketplace, of the public, of who you're dealing with, who you're selling to, who you're going to get your wealth from, you're going to make a lot of mistakes. If you sell to the affluent, you need to know a lot about the affluent. If you sell to mainstream rank-and-file America, you need to have an accurate assessment of what mainstream rank-and-file America is. If you sell to small business people, you need to have an accurate assessment of what small business people are. Not what you'd like them to be, not what they should be, what they are. And Werner understood this. He understood the vast majority of the people didn't want independence. The money was in giving them a place to plug in the cord. So on our list. So one thing is transfer of responsibility. Right. Belief their life will be improved for them. Understand, hardest thing in the world to sell, self-improvement. Do it for them, fine. Mm -hmm. So they give you money because they believe their life will be improved for them. Those are important words. And you're the only known source. 
not the only source, the only known source. That requires you to define yourself and what you do to whatever your constituency is in a way that makes you the only known source. Now, as Kit Grant pointed out to me, you could even, fool, you could even follow up a monopoly. Okay. They, may, they, they, they managed to see how fast did he make Air Canada go broke? I mean, he got Air Canada, the CEO got Air Canada debt-free how long ago? Oh, no, the government turned it over to private energy in 1976. Okay, so in 76 it was debt-free. And there's a total monopoly after, for the last 15 years. And now they're broke. Yeah. Yeah. So you can even screw up on a, on a monopoly, okay? Canada's done it in the airlines. We did it with the postal system, mm -hmm. um, But usually, monopoly's a good thing to have. Right? As a practical matter, it's hard to have, and technically it's illegal. Um, but perception is reality, can, you know, so you can create monopoly. It's a positioning issue. You want to be the only known source. Somebody questioned me yesterday when I said, somebody asked a question, you, uh, that, oh, it was Mitch's vague, you know, why are you successful question. You said no competition. Yeah, and I said no competition. And I was corrected later, actually, because there's a better answer to the question, um, which is actually a completely different answer. And Tracy remembered it from a tape, and it is a better answer. I probably actually have more discipline than most, um, which means I do more. I might not do it better, I just do more. Um, but but the, the competition answer, I mean, well, is Jay Abraham a competitor or is how? No, no because I've defined and positioned what I do in a way that is really different enough from everybody else. And so this is a positioning deal. And you have all the rest of it. I want to talk about authority a little bit. Number three is real important. And I really don't care if you run a restaurant, if you run an auto repair shop. It doesn't matter what business you're in. A big step up in money is personal self-aggrandizement, is making yourself the wizard. And you can't do that politely. This is no place for subtlety or grace. Um, this is a place to run it all over them. And I actually don't like it. And I resisted it. For a number of years, for example, none of my literature had my photograph in it. I don't like being photographed. I don't like photographs of me. Uh, and so by personal preference, there would never be any. But I'd rather have the money. Um, and, and, and so it turns out that that's important. And since it's important, I change my attitude about it as best I can, and I do what works. Um, most people. You and I have had, we've had this conversation in coaching. We're still trying to fix you on this issue. Um, most people are um, 
too, um, I don't want to say humble, they're just, they're reluctant to do this. And some of it probably all the way back to childhood programming. Some of it is the issue of, you know, not deserving the exalted position. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not that big of an expert, which is the, in the land of the one-eyed man, in the land of the blind, blind the one-eyed one man is king. Um, uh, it doesn't take much, really, uh, uh, to know enough. Earl Nightingale said an hour a day for a year, and you're one of the top experts in any field in the country. Uh, because really hardly anybody studies at all. I mean, you know, the last book, they closed the last book when they got out of whatever level of school they left, and, you know, since then. You got to remember, by the way, the last year, 80, 81% of all books bought in bookstores and bought from Amazon were bought as gifts. 81%. Not bought for personal consumption. So if you take the rest of that and divide it and assign it to the 5% of the population that are serious students, you know, the rest ain't reading nothing. So it's not like there's a whole lot of people out there right now trying to become expert in anything. They're not. And so to know more than whatever your herd is doesn't take a whole lot. To know a lot more than whatever your herd does doesn't take a whole lot. I mean, I, you know, we're right now working with Ron Romano on the funeral industry. Up until a month ago, what I know about the funeral industry, you know, we could fit on a three by five card. I'll bet now I know more than 80% of the people running funeral homes. And I mean, it's not like it's been my full-time project for the last month. I mean, but you know, they don't, people don't read their trade journals. They don't, they like get fixed in place and stop. But a lot of people feel reluctant to appoint themselves, you know. There's the whole issue of they think they should be appointed by somebody else. You know, the who will certify me, who will graduate me, who will diploma me, who will anoint me, you know. Wait around for that, you will wait a long time. In fact, in most fields, that process, the anointing, certifying, licensing. My friend Pete has a saying that anything you got to have a license for is a bad deal. Um, <laughs> and, and well, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, the, the people doing the anointing, certifying, licensing, recognizing usually have a vested interest to slow your ascension. Not to, not to speed up your ascension. They're in your way. Because the fact that they can issue the doohickey, they're a rung or two up what they perceive as a vertical ladder above you. Well, the last thing they want is you up there with them. That, that's bad. So the whole process is kilted in the first place. So you appoint yourself. The self-aggrandizement deal, I don't like it, but the more of it you do, um, you got to make yourself bigger than life. Mm -hmm. 
The, the other thing to know about authority is this, and it's a corollary to the umbilical cord statement. My friend Herb True, who just retired, but he was teaching at Notre Dame for a number of years, had gone and had been at Notre Dame as a professor and then left and was out in the real world for 20, 25 years um, and then came back. Um, Herb had me uh, come in and speak at a couple of his classes, which very dangerous. Um, but he and I were talking about the students. And now these are bright kids. And you know, they're in their second year in business courses at Notre Dame, which whatever their parents are paying, it ain't nickels and dimes. And he said, the funniest thing is, he said, I'm like the only guy who assigns them three books on a subject that disagree with each other. And what they come back and want to know is which one is the, the, note the word, the right book. Because that's what everybody wants to know. They want the right answer. Now, on a higher level, we're all smart enough to know rarely is there such a thing. But it's what we want. We want the diet. Just tell me what to eat, tell me what not to eat. If there was one, there'd only be one. As you might have noticed, there's a lot of them. If any of them was the diet that actually worked, there'd be the diet. But everybody wants this. And again, there's a lot of money in positioning yourself as the person who has the right way, the answer. It's an extension of the magic pill. And you give that to yourself. You create that for yourself. Skip the next one for time. Let's go to page 47. Get paid. Corollary, do nothing free. especially dispense advice. There is nothing more futile on earth than giving anybody free advice. At best, they don't appreciate it. At worst, they resent it. But they're not going to benefit from it. Huh? And if it turns out bad, they'll sue you. Well, yeah, well, yeah, I'm not even worried about that. But I mean, it's just futile. It's futile. And everybody does it. We all have the experience of really trying to help somebody. And if you're in our business, if they're the one you put in the seminar for free, they're going to be your biggest problem. Uh, if they're the one you cut your price, do nothing, get paid. They won't pay on to the next one. And Stuart Wilde's quote, by the way, some people have asked me for resources. Now, everybody I'm going to recommend to you is a fatally flawed individual. So when you 
When you find that out, don't invalidate the message. Mm -hmm. okay. If you invalidate the message based on the messenger, Earl Nightingale said, no messengers left. <laughs> so, uh, but, but Stuart Wilde's worth reading, W-I-L-D-E. Um, and Stuart's deal is when they show up, bill them. Do nothing for free. Um, you shouldn't let yourself be manipulated into doing anything for free either. And people are always trying to manipulate and guilt you into doing things for free. Uh, we have, um, in our speaker association, because it suits their purposes, um, they, it's such a fascinating thing. You know, we kid about, we've been joking about yesterday with everybody doing all the work and me getting paid. I at least did a little. The National Speakers Association has three events a year. They have a national convention and they have two workshops. Mm -hmm. it, a kid, I'm out of the loop. What does it cost now to go to the national? For, yeah, what does it cost to go to the national? Okay, six, 600 bucks to go to the national. How much to go to a workshop? 400. 400, okay. And, and how many go to a convention? 2,000. 2,000. Okay. And I don't know, 500 maybe go to the workshops. Mm -hmm. These are professional speakers, understand. This is a trade association for, for professional speakers, which one of the definitions of being a professional versus an amateur is you get paid to do it. Right? All of the speakers on all of these programs are attendees. Right? They all speak to each other. Right? None of them are paid to do it. Not only aren't they paid to do it, they, they don't get their registration fee waived or anything. They pay to go and work for free. It has never occurred to any of them that there is anything strange about this. NSA has brilliantly sold them that it is a privilege to be selected. NSA is also very good at getting as many of them on the program as is humanly possible in the time available. A lot of breakout sessions, a lot of panels. Why? Because the more people you put on the program, the more come. Hmm? They're getting them there by putting them on the program. Now, I don't fault any of this. I just point it out as an anomaly, as an interesting thing, and it's amazing that it has never occurred to anybody participating how the paint defense deals work in here. The whole business is based on paint defense. All the revenues from paint defense. There's nothing else but this. The entire model. And so everybody's working for free. So NSA has this culture. They obviously encourage this. And so when I was on the Peter Lowe events, as you might imagine, there's an endless number of speakers who want to get on there. And um, you know, most of them are destined for failure because they can speak, but they can't sell. But that's neither here nor there. So I started to get the calls of how could, tell me how to get on. Tell me, uh, connect, uh, I'm going to, they would send their stuff. Please give this to Peter. 
Right? Now, these are people, we have nothing, I mean, we, I don't know them. We belong to the same association. Right? They, I'm in a directory. But it's not like I've been getting Christmas cards from any of these people. Some of them have never spoken to me prior to this call. Right? But all of a sudden, we're compatriots in arms with an obligation to assist each other. I have one who's still mad at me. He's in Phoenix. And um, he calls up out of the blue, and he wants to drop by my office, first of all. This is a bad idea. Okay. This is not even a lunch invitation. This is drop by my, he's too cheap to even say, drop by my office and take you to lunch. No, he's going to drop by my office for a couple of hours. Because <laughs> Peter's put him on, he's given him a try. And he wants me to coach him on how to do well. An officer, by the way, for your information. And he is shocked, stunned, and astounded when I am not excited about this prospect. And he proceeds to lay on me the guilt trip deal. Right? NSA has been very good to you. You have an obligation. All the words. Okay? All the guilt words you can find, this guy's packed into one telephone call. He just picked the wrong guy. Mm -hmm. But it would work with a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And in their own way, there's people trying to do it to you all the time. They do, you have no such obligation, and you do them no favors. You've been listening to one of our gold members only podcasts. Make sure you upgrade and become a diamond member and get access to the diamond members only podcast as well. On top of that, you'd also get access to the whole enchilada with all of Dan's courses and so much more. So make sure you upgrade to diamond now by going to diamondupgrade.com.